All right, if you've got a bulletin on the way in, there's a sermon outline in there. Grab that and pull it out. Uh, we are in the uh, Gospel of Luke once more today. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I talked with Ken a little bit about this beforehand because uh, he fits in that category. Some of you probably do too. But I was telling him uh, this past fall, I read a title that caught my eye even as somebody who's not a fisherman. This was the title of the article. Cheating Scandal Rocks the Fishing World. Now, to me, uh, you know, right on thinking, how do you cheat at fishing? I mean, it just doesn't seem like a, uh, a very possible thing to do. There is some pun intended in the wording for that particular article, but uh, it is uh, telling the story of how this past September, the last, the final event of the Lake Erie Walleye Trail Tournament, it's held in, that particular event is held in Cleveland, the two apparent winners had stuffed their fish with lead rocks. Now, the competition involves each team of two anglers, you know, going out over this two-day competition, and in the end of it, entering five walleye. And basically, the, the competition is the prize goes to the team with the heaviest pile of fish. And it's, it's, not, uh, it's not funny money. Uh, $29,000 was the, the, um, the winning pot for all of this. And uh, th these two guys, who'd been suspected of some foul play before, entered this batch of five walleye. Now, those of you that are fishermen, you look at that and you think, why in the world did they cut the sides of the fish like that? And there's a reason for that. Because when those two guys put their, their uh, five walleye on the scale, all these very experienced fishermen looked at that and thought, those are about four-pound walleye. And the scale indicated that they weighed over seven pounds each. And so, of course, the crowd went ballistic. The director of the tournament was interviewed uh, for the article, and he said, it said in there, I thought to myself, there is just no way. And he was right, uh, because closer examination found they had these rocks shoved inside each of those five walleye. And this is that side by side, so you see how big those, those rocks were. Uh, not only did those guys not win the prize money, they've been charged by local authorities with attempted grand larceny and could spend up to a year in jail for trying to cheat at a fishing tournament. Now you would think, you would think experienced fishermen would know better. You're competing against a bunch of guys that know better. Uh, you would think that they would realize that the judges would look a little bit closer and discover their ruse. You would think that, but you would be wrong. These two guys still tried it anyway. But it was that one phrase, you know, the tournament director looked at that catch and said, there is just no way. Um, in the story that we come to in our study through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus looks at a man who has all appearances, winning at life, who appears to be on track for spiritual success, who seems to be a, a good person, maybe better than most people. But Jesus looks at him and in a sense says the, the same kind of thing. You know, there's just no, there's just no way. Uh, but the stakes are a lot higher in this case because for this man, at this point in his life, salvation was what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> salvation had become impossible. Now that sounds like an extreme statement and maybe my title uh, sounds that way. I want you to look at Luke 18. If you got a Bible handy or the Bible app on your phone, open to Luke 18. And I want to look at verses 18 down through 34 with you together. 
Back when I was in seminary, I took a class on personal evangelism, and it was during the heyday of evangelism explosion as a methodology, and some of you uh, might remember that. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I learned that approach, and while methodology, if you will, and tactics have certainly changed since the 1990s, knowing a way to explain the gospel to someone has proved very invaluable, and I'm very thankful for the training I received in some of those ways. But, but some of the methodology that was used back then would be to go door-to-door, -door, you know, knock on, on strangers' uh, front doors and ask if they would be willing to answer a few questions about spiritual things. That doesn't work anymore because you don't open your front door uh, until you see it. it is the pastor at the front door or whatnot. And we just, people just don't open their front door to strangers anymore. And even then it was largely unsuccessful. Uh, but every once in a while you get somebody that uh, would want to talk or would ask a spiritual question and the opportunity to share the gospel would arise. But never did I have someone open the door and say, you know, I've been wondering about this. How do I inherit eternal life? It never happened. Uh, it uh, would seem too good to be true. Now, a lot of you work with kids or work with teenagers. And uh, you get to ask some open and honest questions that can lead to opportunities to share the gospel. I'd encourage you, all of us really, to think through how would you answer questions like that and how you engage with people because the more uh, that our world becomes a dark place, the more people are going to have a thirst for spiritual things. And we each need to be able to explain salvation to those that might question. But in our passage that we come to today, Jesus gets asked that, that wide open, open door question, it feels like. A softball question from a seemingly great prospect for salvation. And Jesus takes it in a direction that nobody would expect. And so let's read how it starts. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18, says this. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, this is one of those interesting stories that shows up in three of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the same story. Uh, and uh, this is the only account that identifies, describes him as a ruler. Matthew describes him as a young man. And so you can put some things together and get an idea of the resume of this individual. He's a young man. He's a religious man. He's a man of some influence. Some might even think he was a religious leader from the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish ruling council. But the most noticeable thing that, that is a trait that goes through all three of those accounts is that he was a young man of incredible wealth, uh, extremely wealthy. And he was blessed with great wealth, which was the way the Jews would look at it. Wealth, especially if the rest of a person's life was in line with religious practices and expectations, wealth was considered a sign that God's blessing your life, because look what you got. Uh, you, you, must be, you must be in close with God because God has blessed you with money. And this kid had that. 
This kid had money. He had lots of it. He was a religious man, maybe even a religious leader. But he comes to Jesus still feeling like he was missing something. And so as I try to outline this a little bit, I captioned this first part. He was a seeker still missing what mattered most. He was a seeker, but was still recognized he was missing something. God has created all of us in his own image. And it's rather interesting to consider how across the spectrum of humanity, God has created every single person the same in his image. And a part of what that brings along is a longing for God. A sense that we have a creator. A desire for a relationship with him that is undeniable. In the book of, of Ecclesiastes, Solomon described it as eternity being set in the heart of man. In chapter 3. Uh, this young man who had so much of what culture then and probably still today would say equates to success, equates to uh, a life going in the right direction, should provide meaning, uh, whether it's money, success, integrity, religious identity. This, this kid had all of those things. But he still sensed there's something wrong here. There's still something missing. And so he comes to Jesus with a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, like I said, that, that kind of sounds like a wide open door, right? And, and maybe if somebody were to ask you a similar type question, that, you know, how do, I, how do I gain eternal life? How do I begin a relationship with God? How do I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Hopefully that you have thought through that and would know how to respond to that. And that's what we expect to begin to hear from Jesus. We expect him to start to talk about his need for salvation and um, his, his lost condition and how he needed to, to trust in, in him. But Jesus goes in a whole different direction. First, he asks about the use of the word good, which is interesting. Because uh, as I was reading this past week, I realized that the Greek word that is used there, that is translated good, was primarily used for God. It refers to good in essence, good in, in nature, was a word primarily used of God. And Jesus it maybe piques his curiosity. This young man chose an interesting word. Um, Jesus was not, you know, when he, he says, why do you call me with that? Why do you call me good? Why do you use that word about me? He wasn't denying that it was appropriate. But maybe he was a little surprised that this young man chose to use that word. Did he realize that Jesus was God? Uh, did he realize that only God is able to be truly good? But then he jumps right off of that into the Ten Commandments. He points him to the Ten Commandments and he lists off six, seven, eight, nine, and then goes back to five. Uh, he does not mention number 10, which is about coveting possessions. And he doesn't mention the, the first four, which were all about keeping God first in your life. Uh, he mentions five down through nine. Uh, and it's a rather interesting selection. You know, don't cheat on your wife, don't steal from others, don't kill people, uh, don't lie in court, and honor your parents. And, you know, maybe Jesus picked those because he knew this young man's response. You knew him maybe better than he knew himself. And he knew that he was going to say what he did. I have kept all those my entire life. Now, that's kind of a bold statement. And I have to think Jesus smiled, realizing now you haven't really kept all those your entire life. Uh, but that was his claim. Uh, I've kept them all my entire life. To which Jesus then said, okay, well, how about number 10? Let's talk about number 10. 
to demonstrate that you're not too wrapped up in possessions, sell everything they have, give it away, and then come and follow me. And at that, the young man's face dropped. He became very sad. He turned and he walked away. And Luke records why. Because he was very wealthy. Now his question at the beginning was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the way that this kind of progressed might give us some questions. Um, Jesus' answer was not intended to specify a strategy for somehow working your way to salvation. You know, you need to give away all your stuff and then you'll be okay with God. Uh, he wasn't outlining uh, a process or steps to take. But he knew this young man. He knew his heart. And he wanted to highlight to this specific individual who thought he was doing all the right things and it's a sign, hey, God's blessing me with all this money, that he was really actually not worshiping God. He was worshiping his money. Commandment number one, top of the list, is have no other gods before me. And for this guy, money was really his God. Uh, he wouldn't say it that way, just like most people today wouldn't say it that way. Uh, but the reality was his wealth mattered more than spiritual things. His wealth mattered more than eternal life. And Jesus knew it. And that's why he put his finger on it. Um, Jesus, as God, I love how the Gospel of John records it, knew what was in the heart of every person that he met. You and I don't get that pleasure, or that maybe that wouldn't be a good thing anyway, but Jesus did. He, he knows the hearts of, knew the heart of every person that he crossed paths with. And God knows what's going on in all of our hearts, what's going on in all of our lives. Uh, a while back I came across a list of supposed letters to pastors from kids. I love getting stuff from kids. And I always have something hung up in my office that somebody colored and gave to me. But kids have a way of speaking with brutal honesty. And I just grabbed a few of these little letters from the list. Dear Pastor, I liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when it was finished. <laughs> Signed, Ralph, age 11. Dear Pastor, I'm sorry I can't leave more money in the plate, but my father didn't give me a raise in my allowance. Could you have a sermon about a raise in my allowance? <laughs> Patty, age 10. Dear Pastor, I would like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. I was an eight-year-old little boy. And, but the last one, this is what I... Dear Pastor, how does God know the good people from the bad people? Do you tell him or does he read about it in the newspapers? Sincerely, Marie, age 9. Well, we know, you know, he doesn't use either of those methods. Um, you can fool the pastor. Uh, you can fool even people that are close to you. But God knows every one of our hearts. God knows every one of our hearts. Jesus, being God, could look at a man and know, look at a woman and know what was going on in their heart. He had, this young man had so much potential. Asked the right questions. Came to the right place. But God knew, you know what, in his heart, he was obsessed with a substitute that still seduces people. In fact, that's the second thing that I put on here. The substitute that seduces people still. You pick up where we stopped reading, verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, there's where I got my title for the sermon today, Impossible Salvation. Jesus himself observes that it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then he used a, a common expression, uh, an exaggeration, if you will, but a common expression in their language that it would be easier for a camel, which was the largest animal in Israel, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest uh, opening that you could imagine, than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those that were listening to Jesus use that uh, expression came to the, con the only conclusion, well that's impossible. You can't take a camel and put it through the eye of a needle. It is impossible uh, to do that. Uh, it's impossible. And if it's impossible for a rich person to be saved, then is there any hope for the rest of us? Because, like I said, the, the cultural mentality was riches are an indication of God's favor, of God's blessing. And if a rich person can't, can't be saved, then none of the rest of us have any hope. Um, this young man with tremendous wealth Assumed he was doing all the right things to deserve eternal life, partly because he was so rich, you know, it seemed like. But he sensed something was wrong. And Jewish culture at that point, and I think American culture today too, uh, viewed a person with money as a person who has their life all put together. That's an indication that you're going in the right directions. Um, and I get it. You know, money's really important. I don't know if you started this, but this past week I started doing my taxes. Joyous time of year, trying to sort through all that sort of thing and crunch some numbers and all that. But I recalled a joke that I was sent a little while ago. There's a Dutchman who is explaining the red, white, and blue of the Netherlands flag uh, to a, uh, an American. And they said, our flag is symbolic of our taxes. We get red when we talk about them, white when we get our tax bills, and blue after we pay them. And the American nodded and said, it's the same in the U.S., only we see stars, too. <laughs> you know, and we all understand that, right? We all understand the, the struggle with uh, finances. We want to keep our money, not hand it over to Uncle Sam. Because money's a huge part of life, everyday life. You've got to have it. And so much of our life uh, is wrapped around it. And providing for our families, those are all very noble aspects. Money is a really important part of life. But it is also, and, and can quickly become so seductive, so seductive, that if we do not pay attention to the direction of our hearts, money starts to matter more than following Jesus. Uh, money starts to matter more than worshiping God, than serving in the local church. It just kind of happens that money slips into this place in, in the interior of our souls that only belongs to God. And that's a problem for true believers, to those that know Christ as their Savior. It can happen to us, but it can be eternally disastrous for those that don't know Jesus. And that's because a person that has... Uh, outward success, you know, that's doing pretty well, that has his or her retirement fund padded, that uh, has a financial future looking up and to the right, can be so caught up in that that they don't sense at all they need to bother with God until it's too late. You know, we've all met people. We all know people that have that perspective. 
I read an old quote by the Puritan preacher Hugh Latimer, and this is from the 1500s. But he said, the devil is the most diligent preacher of all. And that's true in a lot of different ways. The devil is the most diligent preacher. Uh, He never stops advancing the message that this experience or that possession or this accomplishment, hey, that's more important than bothering to seek God. And in our culture, money, the economy, the prospect, the financial security are some of the loudest voices, some of the loudest sermons preached that all of us uh, draw people away from God. And pretty close to that, a second message, next loudest, if you will, is the message, you're good enough. You're a good person. You keep most of the Ten Commandments. You pay your taxes, wear your seatbelt, work hard on your job. You take care of your family. You're a good person. You're good enough. That's a dangerous message, too. Because none of us on our own are good enough. I'm not good enough. The rich young ruler was not good enough. He knew it, which is why he came to Jesus. Something's just, I'm, it's not fully, fully right inside my heart. He recognized it. Um, and he comes to Jesus with this question, what, what do I got to do still? But doing doesn't cut it with God. There's no person you've ever met that has been able to do something to deserve, inherit eternal life. And that is because God demands perfection to be part of his family. Uh, That was central to this young man's problem. He thought he was good enough because he kept, you know, four out of ten, the Ten Commandments. He thought he was good enough because he kept some of God's rules. But he was missing others and completely ignoring some. He was proving Jesus' point. And, and as good as this kid looked, you know, that everybody looked in on his life and saw the wealth and thought, man, he's got to be good with God. He's got to be right with God because of that. As good as this kid looked, he could never do enough to be good enough to earn eternal life. Because no one can. At the end of the section of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus sort of redefines several things in the Old Testament. And you might remember Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, and in that section you find things like, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even look with lust. Um, you've heard it said, uh, you know, don't uh, murder. Uh, I say to you, don't even hate. Um, he puts in there, you know, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. He just completely flips on, on its head uh, all these different commands that people, the Jews, understood and, and held to the letter in specific ways. But at the very end of that section, you find this very odd verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus said, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's strange. Um, Be perfect, especially after ramping up the expectation. So I, it's as if Jesus said, you know, you thought you were keeping the the law just right. Let me me add to that. You know, don't even lust. You know, don't even hate. Love your enemies. And God expects you to be perfect. Keep those uh, 
not just the letter of the law, but the intent behind it perfectly. Be perfect like God, your Father in heaven is perfect. And he said that knowing none of us can do that. None of us can keep that. None of us can be perfect on our own. Because all it takes is one trip up and perfect is out the window. It was R.C. Sproul, I think, who, who said once a person commits one sin, it's impossible to ever be perfect. He's a lost perfection. That's, that, you know, that's gone as a possibility. Um, and we all have the same problem. Uh, in James chapter 2, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. At least every person guilty. Perfection is gone. Every person is unable to save themselves. Every person is unable to achieve that goal of inheriting eternal life in the kingdom of God. It's impossible. Which makes verse 27 the most important verse in here. So go back and look at verse 27 with me. Jesus is replying to their observation. Well, if it's hard for a rich person, it's impossible for the rest of us. But Jesus says, what is impossible with God, what is impossible with man, is possible with God. What's impossible in your uh, viewpoint, what is impossible for you as a person on your own, is possible is possible because of what God would do. It's impossible for any person to be good enough to do the right things to, to result in inheriting the kingdom of God. It's impossible with man, but not with God. And I think it is very intentional and very uh, important that right after this story about the rich young ruler, you find verse 31. Jump ahead with me. Verse 31 says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of it. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Why put that in right then? Why, why right after this whole discussion about it's impossible for mankind on his own to do something to inherit eternal life? Because it was going to be possible when they got to Jerusalem. What Jesus would do made salvation possible for you and me. I described those verses this way, the only sacrifice that could make salvation possible for you. Now this is the third time actually that Jesus gave those kind of details on this trip going to Jerusalem. He highlighted for his guys what would happen when they arrived. And in this one he says, you know, when we get there, all those Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 53, they're going to be fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled. The Son of Man, the promised Messiah, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. But on the third day, on the third day he'll rise again. Now, they didn't get it, but Jesus was saying, this is how. This is how perfection becomes available. This is how uh, eternal life can become yours. The only perfect person that has ever lived will suffer, will die for the imperfections of the rest of the human race. And on the other side, salvation will be possible for everyone who will believe. The only sacrifice that could make salvation possible for you was Jesus 
on that cross, the perfect Son of God. Now, we're only a few weeks, six weeks, I think, and you get near daylight savings time and you're getting closer to spring and Easter. We're six weeks away from Easter. And so there's some things I want you to think about this morning, thoughts to consider six weeks from Easter. Here's the, the first one. Good enough will never qualify a person for eternal life. You need Jesus' perfection applied to your account. We don't always think about or consider the full transaction of what happens when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. The full salvation, the full transaction of salvation is not just that our sins are forgiven when Jesus died in our place. That's, that's a really important part. That's the first half. But it's also that the perfect life of Jesus is now credited to our account. And uh, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. You know, that's what we often think about. We're sinners. We so much need forgiveness from God. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus took your sin, my sin on himself. Um, that's a, a critical aspect of the transaction of salvation. But the second half of the verse is just as important. Uh, so we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus' perfection, Jesus' righteousness is placed on my account and your account. Uh, we are in Jesus Christ. We are in Him um, the moment that we put our faith in, in Christ. And so it's not just that your sins are forgiven. Now it is that God sees you through His Son. And that perfect record of Jesus becomes your perfect record. On their own, no one is good enough to deserve right standing with God. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus is God. He proved it by living that perfect life. He died in our place. He offers forgiveness and new life and His righteousness if we will just believe. And I, and I would hope that, I hope that every person here this morning would um, consider, would make sure that you've responded to that. Because when you have, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, yes, you're forgiven of your sin, but you're also, you're also placed into the body of Christ. Uh, you are given the righteousness of God. The perfection of Jesus is credited to your, to your account. Good enough will never qualify. You need Jesus' perfection. Here's a second takeaway from this. Money's a dangerous distraction. Money is a dangerous distraction. Many people worship it over God and, and don't even notice. I heard a pastor not long ago make this statement. Uh, he said, if money defines you, it will destroy you. And we don't usually think about money that way. You know? We've all got bills to pay. We've all got our financial goals and things that we want to accomplish in life. And, and I'm no different from you in all of that. But does money define your life? Does it define everything about what you think about? If money defines you, it will destroy you. Most of us fail to see the dangers inherent in money. Uh, we just concentrate on, you know, what it's going to provide for us, what we hope it's going to bring into our future. Uh, it is uh, so easy to look past the dangers inherent in it. And it is our culture's biggest distraction. 
and highest object of worship. And as Christians, we're not exempt from that. You know, this, this man in this story, he was a good person. He was a wealthy person. Uh, he was a spiritually seeking individual. But you just read it and you realize his money mattered more than God. And the way the story closes, that put him in an eternally dangerous place. His money mattered more than God. And it happens way too often. It happens way too often in our times. The money, getting more of it, matters more than God. And I would challenge you, don't let money define you. Don't let it color every th thought and every decision that you make. But also, there's a flip side. Don't discount why God gave it to you. Uh, we skipped over some verses. I want to go back and read them. If you, there's a little interaction at the end of this. Right after Jesus said what's impossible with man is possible with God, Peter piped up. And Peter said to him, um, you know, and you just picture Peter saying this, but Peter said, we've left everything. We had to follow you. You know, what about us? We're, we're, we've put it all behind us. And Jesus made this statement. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Eternal life. Jesus didn't brush that aside. You know, Peter, I know that. I've seen that. Sacrificing for the kingdom of God gains the attention of the king. And when we use the finances that God has entrusted to us to make a difference for the kingdom, God notices that. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that there's a reward waiting. Finances can be worshipped or they can be invested in spiritual things that will bear fruit forever. And I think that's a healthy balance and a reminder. And then here's my last thought to consider just a few weeks from Easter. The death of Jesus on the cross was planned and purposeful. It didn't just happen. It was not an accident. It was not, uh, you know, things got out of control. The death of Jesus on the cross was planned and was purposeful. Three times now Jesus has told his guys, when we get here, this is what's going to happen. Well, why? Because he could see the future? No. Because that was the plan of God. That was the only way to provide salvation for people like you and me. Uh, he willingly walked to Calvary, so your impossible salvation, without this, salvation's impossible. Um, he willingly walked to Calvary so you could make your impossible salvation possible. Um, Easter's going to come fast. Uh, I always find it helpful in the weeks that lead forward to it uh, to take some time to really sort of focus on that and think about uh, what Jesus did, why he did that, and how he walked into uh, that last week of his life uh, with a specific intentional purpose. Uh, consider the eternal importance of that historical moment. Jesus knew. He knew what was coming and he moved towards Jerusalem and towards Calvary anyway the cross was planned it was purposeful with you in mind with me in mind um, and I think it's worth asking worth considering how does my life show 
that I cherish that? How does my life, my daily routine, honor that Jesus did that? And how might you or me do something differently this week than we do normally um, to remind ourselves of Christ's sacrifice in our behalf? If it was up to you, salvation and eternal life and escape from the fire of hell would be impossible. You couldn't get away if it was up to you. But Calvary changed the impossible to possible. Let that sink in. Make sure that you've responded to it. Make sure that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you have, let that sink in today. Let it change what you do and how you live and maybe even who or what you actually worship this week. I want to close with a, a hymn that points our attention to Calvary, but before I do, let's pray together, okay? Father, I thank you so much for this reminder of what Jesus went to the cross to accomplish for me, for all of us. It was at Calvary that Jesus' death provided for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of the righteousness of God being placed on our account. I'm thankful for that. I pray that everyone here today would evaluate their own hearts. God knows our hearts. You know our hearts. But I can't look out here and see who has actually responded to the gospel and put their faith in Jesus and who has not. You know, Lord, and we do too. Uh, so I pray for that person that might right now not be sure that they've settled that, that they've ever trusted Christ, that they would. They talk to somebody, or even just right now, they would talk to you and make sure uh, that they have put their faith in what Jesus did at Calvary. But for all of us, Lord, life just sort of gets full and we lose sight of the cross. We lose sight of you as the one that ought to be central in our thinking and in our daily routine. And it's good. It's good for us to ask ourselves some harder questions. Um, am I living in light of what Jesus did? Am I actually worshiping God? Or have I let something else become more important? Uh, as we sing about Calvary, Help us think through those things for ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray.